This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for the public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, Put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Well, thanks, Ralph. I tell you, I say it all the time. When I get to heaven, I expect the voice of God to be very similar to yours, my brother. And, and by the way, uh, you are legendary across the covenant. Uh, as I went to midwinter conference this past week in Denver as the gathering of the covenant ministerium, people were asking about Hank and Lil, Ralph and Gert, uh, several times from the platform and in meetings and individually. People spoke about um, God's movement through the covenant church and through the people of Alaska, and it's so encouraging to know that uh, our church has a very important place in uh, God's moving in this state and through our denomination. So, uh, greetings, especially uh, Hank and Lil and Ralph and Gert uh, from uh, Midwinter, and from many people that wanted me to send their love and greetings to you. Um, we've been in a series. The Spirit of Adventure, God on the Move, 
then and now. And of course, we're looking at the book of Acts because in the book of Acts, we see a healthy missional church, healthy meaning pursuing Christ, missional meaning pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. Uh, And as we are growing and strengthening ourselves as a healthy missional church, there are many lessons to be learned uh, through that early church, those first followers of Jesus, as we read through the book of Acts. One of the ways that God is on the move then and now, and especially in the context of our scripture, is through prayer. Do you know that God moves through prayer? Do you know that you and I get the privilege of participating in the the movement of God as we pray, as we intercede, as we stand up for our brothers and sisters, for the activity of God in the world? We get that privilege of participating with Him. That's part of what it means to be on the move, that we move through prayer. You know, that's why we place such an emphasis on, on prayer in our church. We want to grow into prayer because wherever we go, whatever we do as a congregation, uh, prayer is going to be foundational. Prayer isn't something you do in ministry. Prayer is the ministry. That's how important it is. And we see that here in our passage uh, today. Uh, have you ever had anybody tell you you haven't got a prayer? You know what? Man, when you hear that, get ready. Because that's the time that we really see God at work. And that's the case in our passage today. Uh, I remember one such time in my life. Um, I was back in college, I think for the third time. Um, through a, a series of life circumstances. Uh, I had difficulty completing my coursework and I had several classes that I didn't finish. They were incompletes that later on turned to Fs. And I had a declining, plummeting grade point average. And uh, not once, twice, uh, I was academically disqualified from uh, the university where I was doing my undergraduate work. Okay? Confessions of Pastor Todd. No one said it would be easy. And I remember... Um, when I really sensed in my life that uh, I wanted to pursue uh, vocational ministry, uh, I knew in order to go to graduate school, to go to seminary, that I had to finish uh, my bachelor's degree. And so that was motivation. So uh, they say a third time's a, a charm. So I went back and I worked hard and uh, I was able to get mostly A's, a couple of B's, and uh, raised my grade point average just to the place where um, I could graduate. Okay? And when I went to petition to graduate, uh, I found out that in between the time that I had last been disqualified and I had re-entered the university, that the um, requirements for my major had changed. There was an old catalog, but then when I came back to school, there was the new catalog. And because I didn't officially withdraw, I just disappeared, right? Um, When I came back, the requirement was I was going to have to graduate under the the new catalog, which meant about six or seven additional courses that I had to take. Uh, And you know what? I have to tell you, I was crushed. 
had opportunities, wanted to go to seminary, was already involved in ministry and had other ministry opportunities that were opening up to me that were really dependent upon my getting done with my undergraduate work and, and getting into seminary. And, and I remember I was sitting on a bench one afternoon and one of my professors, Dr. Leslie Namar, uh, in the Department of uh, Speech Communication at Cal State Los Angeles, where I was attending. Lori was also a student there. Um, and I was standing there, sitting there, and I had my head down. I had just received word that I had to graduate under the, the new catalog, and I wasn't going to be able to graduate in the spring as I had thought I was. She said, Todd, what's going on? I said, oh, Dr. Namar, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm back to school. You know my story. I've worked really hard, and I applied for graduation this this uh, this spring, and it was denied because now they're saying I have to graduate under the requirements of the new catalog because I didn't officially withdraw. Um, and uh, mind you, now this is like 11 years from when I started. Okay. Um, and she says, have you ever thought about petitioning the dean, the academic dean, um, to get uh, an exception? Because she can let you graduate under the old catalog. And I said, well, Dr. Namar, yes, I, I've thought of it, but um, you know that that is rarely granted. In fact, all the students I've, I've talked to who have applied for those kinds of uh, exceptions... Uh, the petition has been denied. In fact, uh, one of our cohorts in class told me, Todd, you haven't got a prayer. Don't bother. And Dr. DeMar said, you know, Todd, I'll, I'll write you a letter of recommendation. I just would encourage you to do that anyway. You never know what might happen. And so I did. And this is the general academic pe- uh, petition for undergraduate requirements, and is dated uh, March 17th, 1988. Okay? Here's the petition. And I was petitioning to graduate under the old catalog requirements. And uh, on here, I wrote a letter. I pled my case. I was petitioning to the most powerful person in the university, the person that had the, the power... Um, to change my trajectory academically. And uh, her name was Juanita Montavari, Dr. Montavari. And uh, I wrote this letter to her, and I said, this letter is an explanation of my petition to graduate under the requirements set forth in the old catalog. Uh, I first enrolled in the fall of 1979. My enrollment followed my mother's death earlier that year. Coming from a single-parent home, I was left with a burden of estate settlement and related financial responsibilities. Despite my best efforts, the pressure of threatened property foreclosure and other financial hardships led to several quarters of poor academic performance. That's an understatement. <clears throat> Frustrated and embarrassed, which I was, I found myself unable to cope with failures in my personal and academic life. See? By the way, growing up in a home where there was domestic violence, uh, I thought the way to get through life was just to do everything perfect and right, okay? Um, Because I thought then, right, I wouldn't be the object of people's anger or violence, you know? And so I had this kind of perfection performance orientation that, that developed in my life. And because of that, 
whenever I got close to failing or struggling or having difficulty, I didn't know how to handle it because I was afraid, right? I wouldn't be accepted or someone would think there was something wrong with me. That's part of my stuff, my story. Uh, that's why I take very seriously um, issues that objectify women that lead to domestic violence because I'm a survivor, okay? That's part of my story here. That's, that's part of why I had a struggle. So, with that, finally, under the weight of emotional stress, I, fish, uno- I, I unofficially withdrew from the university. Um, then I go on and say, I'm requesting that my petition request be granted for several reasons. And I go on to talk about uh, the cost. And then finally, I say that I'm presently being considered for a full-time ministry position. This position would be greatly uh, enhance my ability to provide for my financial needs of my family, as well as allow me to save money. And so it says, uh, my selection for this position is contingent upon my having a BA degree. Uh, if the petition is granted, I will uh, be available to start work immediately. Finally, I believe the practical purpose of an undergraduate degree is to prepare a student for a professional career and or graduate school. My undergraduate studies at Cal State Los Angeles have accomplished both. Thank you for considering this. And so this is what I submitted with the petition, okay? And I had no expectation that anything was going to happen, but I did it. After all, I didn't have a prayer. (laughs) Well... I went and I made an appointment and I thought it was important enough that I would hand deliver this to Dr. Montavari. And so I went into her office, right, the Holy and Holy, the Holy of Holies of Academia at the university. Uh, and there I handed her the petition and I pled my case before her. And she said, well, you know, Todd, it's not my decision. She said, there's an academic advisory committee that this has to go before, and they'll make the final decision. You will know in three weeks to a month. Okay? That was a Friday afternoon. Monday, I got home from school, and I went to the mailbox, and I found this yellow piece of paper. And it says, may graduate under the GE requirements of the 1980-81 old program catalog. And it was signed by Dr. Montavari. And so she made the decision on her own. Um, And she interceded in my life and changed my life circumstances that put me on a trajectory um, to go to graduate school to enter full-time ministry. Now, why do I share this with you? Because today, in our passage, we are looking at a situation where, ostensibly, those involved would think they don't have a prayer. I mean, let's think about this. The gospel has moved out of Jerusalem, okay? It's gone to Samaria. It's it's gone up into Syria, uh, what Jesus said to his disciples that uh, you're going to take the gospel to the othermost ends of the earth, including Alaska someday. He meant that. You know that? He had Alaska in mind. It was happening. And as we were looking, uh, beginning in Acts chapter 7 with uh, the persecution of Stephen, 
all the way through chapter 11 of Acts, we're seeing this spread of the gospel. And it's now being acknowledged as no longer just a movement of Judaism, but Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. And not only that, here's the cool thing. They're not having to become Jews to do it. But now Luke, in his account of the spread of the gospel, the growth of the church, he takes us back to Jerusalem and to what's going on there with the Jewish Hebrew followers of Jesus. And as we begin our passage today, it talks about James. James was one of the original, what, 12 that Jesus selected. He was a brother of John. And it said that Herod, okay, King Herod, had him put to death by the sword. Now, we know that Stephen is the first martyr in the Christian church. James is going to be, or is here, the first of Jesus' original disciples to be martyred. And it says that he was put to death by the sword. That's an interesting um, observation that Luke that Luke makes, and it has a real strong inference. Uh, the whole idea of being put to death by the sword goes back to Deuteronomy thirteen twelve through fifteen. And in Deuteronomy thirteen twelve through fifteen, it says, "If anybody is guilty of." teaching about a false god there to be put to death by the sword. And so Herod, um, based on that and his understanding of Jewish law and to appease or to um, win uh, the good graces of the Jewish people, have James put to death by the sword. In other words, that Jesus was Messiah, Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was God incarnate, right? He had him put to death by the sword. And he used that to do it. It's interesting, we see James' death told, foretold by Jesus in Mark 10, 39. If you have your Bible, you can just go turn to that, Mark 10, 39. I'll read it to you. You might remember the conversation. It's James and John, the sons of Zebedee, of course, and they're asking, uh, they're asking Jesus, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, we, who's going to sit in your right and your left hand? And, uh, Jesus says in, uh, verse 39, or excuse me, uh, verse 38, he says, uh, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup uh, I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And they said, we can, they answered. Now here's the, here's the link to Acts 12. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. Okay. And later on, when we celebrate communion, we think of the cup where Jesus poured out his life. And, uh, here James, is literally drinking that cup as he pours out his life for the sake of the gospel for Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, Peter is the one now that is also thrown into prison by Herod. And it's going to be 20 years later on that Peter will also give his life. And uh, that's found in John 21 
18 through 19, okay? Uh, where Jesus, in talking to Peter, talks about Peter stretching out his arms, okay? In an act that, that he is not going to want to participate in, but will. And that is speaking of the manner of death in which Peter will die, because you know Peter will be crucified. And uh, tradition has it that he was uh, crucified upside down with a blindfold because he didn't want the light, the bright lights of heaven to blind him. Okay? And uh, that is here in John 21. Jesus says in uh, 21, uh, 18, Feed my sheep, very truly I tell you, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Okay? Think about that imagery. And someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Okay? Jesus is alluding to what's going to happen later on in, in Peter's life. And so, here Herod has Peter put to death, or excuse me, uh, James put to death. And now, he has Peter thrown in prison, and his intention is, it's during the time of the Passover, his intention is that when that week is over, the week following the Passover supper, the week of the festival of the unleavened bread, he is going to have Peter executed. Now, why would he do such a thing? You may or may not know about this guy, Herod. His real name is Herod Agrippa I. He's the the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, that was the Herod when Jesus was born. In this particular Herod, Herod Agrippa, he grew up as a child in Rome. And do you know that he grew up with other children that would one day become emperors of Rome? Okay, Gaius is one. Claudius is another. And so he was connected. Uh, but under the reign of Tiberius, he got into trouble. In fact, he was actually thrown in prison for a time. But then later on, he was released because of his influence uh, with his youthful peers who had grown up to have power in Rome. And he was given, if you will, the kingdom of his grandfather. And the size and the portion of his kingdom extended to the same boundaries that his grandfather did. But you see, because he was on shaky ground with Rome, he wanted to keep peace among the Jewish people. And one of the ways he sought to win their favor was to persecute those who were followers of Jesus. He has James put to death. Ah, that wins him favor. And now he's going to imprison Peter. And he's going to have Peter put to death. And that'll win him more favor. And that'll make him look good with Rome. Do you see what's going on here? All right. And so he has Peter put into prison. And in verse 4, it says, After arresting him, he put him into prison. He handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Now, look at this. This is so cool. All this is going on. The church, if you will, is, is on the run. Up until this time, it had enjoyed just the favor of people. There were thousands being converted, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But now we're seeing Christianity being identified separate from Judaism. In fact, there are Jewish leaders and Jewish people that are really cheering on Herod in his persecution of these followers. And so all this is going on. 
Peter is thrown in prison and all seems lost. It seems like a hopeless situation. Having seen James just what? Put to death by the sword, Peter hasn't got a prayer. Or does he? Well, let's look here. I love verse 5. This is one of the great buts of the Bible. Alright? It's wonderful. So Peter was kept in prison, but... Oh, this is so good. I'm so excited about This is good stuff. But the church was earnestly praying for him. He was, he was put in prison. He didn't have a prayer, but the church, right? The combined followers of Jesus were earnestly praying for him. That word earnestly in the original language means literally they were stretched out in prayer, stretching themselves out to God in prevailing and persistent prayer, continuous prayer. And it's, it's ironic here, okay, that Herod, in another translation, the word there is used stretched out. Herod stretched out his hand to have Peter arrested. He stretches out the limits of his human authority and power to have Peter arrested to try to stop the move of the gospel and appease the Jews who were upset with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here you have Herod stretching out his hand to arrest Peter. It's the limit and the power of his authority. But now you have the church stretching out their hands to the one who is the ultimate authority. To our God in heaven. The one to whom they have committed and devoted their lives to. And in earnest prayer, they are petitioning. They're making petition to God on behalf of Peter. That is good stuff. In fact, it says it was while Peter slept that they were praying. And it was while Peter slept that God moved in answer to that prayer. In answer to prevailing, pervasive prayer. You know, that's why we have a prayer team here. So that any time during the service you can stand up and you can go and you can greet and reach and touch the hands of those who are willing to stretch out to God and intercede on your behalf. Make petition on your behalf. There is power in prayer. Prayer changes circumstances. Prayer changes lives. And so here was Peter asleep bound with chains between guards. And an angel of the Lord comes and, and releases him. And the scripture says he, he thought he was having a vision. It was just he was sleepwalking. He didn't really understand or believe what was happening until he was led out of the city, to the prison, to the street. And then he realized what had happened. And how ironic it is that at a time of Passover, when the Jewish people are celebrating the great deliverance of God from Egypt, that here we are again at the time of Passover where Peter, as a messenger of the greatest deliverer of Israel, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, 
and they put him in prison. What an irony, huh? And now, Peter, he's been set free in answer to prevailing prayer. You know, sometimes you and I pray, and our answers to prayer aren't immediate, or they're not in the way that we think they should be. Right? Now think about this. Do you think they were, they were praying for James? They were, weren't they? But it was a different outcome, wasn't it? But here's the thing. Their prayer may not have resulted in James being released. I'm sure that's what they were stretched out asking for. But instead, their prayer resulted in a triumphant fortitude that God gave James. And somewhere in the midst of man's plan to stop the spread of the gospel, God intervenes and in triumphant fortitude, James, yes, is martyred, but his martyrdom ultimately serves the greater purpose of the kingdom of God. And so even in that way, their prayers were answered. That we need to remain faithful and obedient regardless of the outcome, believing that our prayers make a difference and that God works in the context of prayer. It's like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. When Nebuchadnezzar wants them to bow down before the idol. And what do they say? They say, listen, our God may choose to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship the false image. That they were faithful and obedient regardless of the outcome. And that we know that prayer will result either in miraculous deliverance as it did in the case of Peter or triumphant fortitude as it did in the case of James. But either way, the movement of God, the hand of God, the will of God will not be thwarted. You see that? Prayer is powerful. Well, the story goes on and of course we, we know that Peter, he, he goes to the house of Mary who is John Mark's Mother, Barnabas's cousin, right? John, Mark, and Barnabas. We talked about him last week. And he's at the outer gate, at the outer door, and he's knocking, right? And what? Rhoda here comes, and she answers, and she looks. It's Peter. She can't believe it. She closes the door, and she goes and tells the, those that are gathered, and what do they say? It can't be him. It must be a ghost. And what do we learn here? You know what? We need to be expected. When we haven't got our prayers, when we need to be most expectant. That they were praying, they were earnestly interceding on behalf of Peter. But when Peter shows up in answer to prayer, they don't believe it. It's like when I went to my mailbox and I found my petition. I didn't believe it. I didn't. I couldn't believe it. I was told I didn't have a prayer. (laughs) And oh, how we need to live in that expectation. In fact, they think it was an angel, they said. Because there was a belief in the Jewish culture of that day that, that guardian angels looked like the people that they were guardians of. Do you know that? As they said, he must have been an angel. It must have been his guardian angel. And they sat and they argued about it. While Peter's knocking on the door. Okay? Uh, and then he comes in and, and, he, and he tells them that he wants uh, the disciples that aren't there, and especially James, the brother of Jesus, who is going to be a leader now, not, not the James that was put to death, 
but James, the brother of Jesus, who later on, how he becomes a follower and a leader in the Jerusalem church and in the movement. And he wants that James to know. James, by the way, is the one that writes the epistle or the, or the letter of James. And you know what he writes in James chapter 5, verse 16? Mark it down, write it down, put it in your heart, don't let it go, because it is really what this passage is all about. He writes, the prayers of righteous men and women, of men and women sold out to Jesus Christ, their prayers availeth much. Your prayers, my prayers, they availeth much. That God works in the context of prayer, that God moves then as He does now in prayer, And that we know that prayer goes where we cannot. You can sit here in Eagle River, Alaska and pray for what's going on in the Congo, in the covenant ministry, or in Kenya, or in the the villages of western Alaska. You may never go there in person, but your prayers do, and your prayers change lives. This passage is a testimony to that. You know, it was in the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat this, eat this in remembrance of me. After supper, he, he took the cup and the imagery of the cup in which his life is going to be poured out. That's what he said to, to James and John there in Mark 10.39. He says, can you drink from this cup? And they said, yes, Lord, we can. And he says, yes, you will. And James' life was poured out. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. As often as you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. So that whenever we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we declare Jesus' death until he comes again. And Jesus is coming again. We live in that hope. We live in that promise. And it's that God to whom we pray who directs us to the cross of Jesus where there's forgiveness of sin, where there is new life, resurrection life, where there is hope. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you feel like uh, you're a James and for whatever reason you've been crushed and put to death. Your spirit is waning. Or you're a Peter. Your life right now, you feel like you're in chains in some kind of bondage. Or, or maybe you feel like part of that uh, group of prevailing believers at Mary's house who are earnestly stretching out 
petitioning God. Wherever you are this morning, I want you to know that Jesus wants to meet you at this table. And He is a God that is more than able to meet you and to lead you from wherever you are into life, into that new life that's found only in Christ. Uh, As you're ready, come up and you can take uh, the cup and the bread. There's tables to my right and my left and in the rear as well. Uh, When you're done with that, uh, hold on to the cup and we'll we'll drink it together. Father, we thank you for um, this table, a table that was set by Jesus to remind us that he is the one who gave his life and the only one who can give us life. And today, Lord, as we come to this table, wherever we are coming from, whatever is going on in our hearts and our lives, we meet Jesus as the source of life. Father, help us this morning through this bread and through this cup to enter in to the reality of that life in new and meaningful ways. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.